Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and a warm welcome to Money Talk from me, Peter Lewis. This podcast is currently ranked number seven on the most listened to finance and investment podcasts in Hong Kong on Apple Podcasts. So if you're listening on iTunes, thank you very much for tuning in. You can also catch us on Google Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. Here are the business and finance headlines for Thursday, the 8th of June. The Canadian Central Bank has resumed interest rate increases after pausing in January. The Bank of Canada unexpectedly raised the target for its overnight rate by 25 basis points to 4.75% after pausing the tightening campaign in the previous two meetings. Markets were anticipating interest rates would be left on hold and borrowing costs in Canada are now at the highest level in 22 years. The OECD has forecast that global economic growth will slow from 3.3% last year to 2.7% this year before picking up to 2.9% in 2024. Growth this year is up slightly from the OECD's previous projection of 2.6%. However, when not including the pandemic hit year of 2020, this would still be the lowest yearly rate since the 2008 to 2009 financial crisis. Chinese exports slumped more than expected in May. Shipments from China shrank 7.5% from a year earlier to a three-month low of 283.5 billion US dollars, reversing from 8.5% growth in April. It marks the first decline in exports since February and the steepest decline in four months. The Australian economy grew at its slowest pace since the third quarter of 2021 in the first three months of this year, held back by high inflation and a consumer spending crunch. GDP expanded 0.2% Q-on-Q in the first quarter of this year, below market forecasts of a 0.3% increase, and after an upwardly revised 0.6% increase in Q4. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. To talk about the oil markets, we have Vandana Hari, founder of Vandu Insights. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, the rally in US stocks paused Wednesday, with the broad market index fluctuating near its highest closing level since August 2022. The S&P 500 ticked down 0.4% to close at 4,268. The Dow bucked the downward trend, adding 92 points or 0.3%, closing at 33,665. The Nasdaq Composite declined 1.3%. That's its worst day since middle, mid-April. The CBOE Volatility Index, or the VIX, briefly touched 13.77 on Wednesday. That's the lowest since February the 14th, 2020. US Treasuries retreated after an unexpected rate increase by the Bank of Canada, stoked expectations that the Federal Reserve may not be done raising rates either. The chance of a 25 basis point rate hike from the Fed this month rose to 29% from about 22% yesterday, according to CME Group's FedWatch tool, and the odds of another rate hike in July rose to 66%. The 10-year Treasury bond yield jumped 12 basis points higher to 3.80%. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index jumped 153 points to 19,252 as more investment banks added to predictions that Beijing will deliver policy supports to help the faltering economy. 
Media reports of a planned trip by Secretary of State Antony Blinken to China this month also helped support the market. The tech index surged 2.3%. This morning, Hang Seng Futures are pointing to a decline of 60 points or 0.3% at the open. The Shanghai Composite was 0.1% firmer yesterday at 3,198. The Chinese yuan hit a fresh 2023 low against the dollar, sliding to 7.147 renminbi in offshore markets. That's its worst level versus the dollar since November last year. Mainland media reported that some of China's biggest lenders cut rates on US dollar deposits in a move to slow the decline in the yuan. It was later reported that regulators asked major state-owned banks to lower deposit rates by as much as 100 basis points to 4.3%. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our Thursday morning guests. As always on a Thursday morning, we have with us Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. And also joining us is Andrew Sullivan, who is founder of Asian Market Sense. Very good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. Trade data um, out of China yesterday showed exports slumped more than expected in May in a further blow to the country's hopes for a strong economic rebound from the COVID-19 pandemic. Exports from China shrank 7.5% from a year earlier to a three-month low of 283.5 billion US dollars in May. That's reversed from 8.5% growth in April. Economists had been expecting a 0.4% drop. Um, Andrew, Andrew Ferris, um, we've seen three months of pretty strong export growth, haven't we? Which, which surprised people, um, rather, given the state of the, uh, the, the global economy. But that now seems to have reversed. What can we sort of read into this? Well, there are actually, I will not, sorry, I will not agree that you have been seeing uh, even relatively strong growth. In the last uh, uh, eight months, six of the numbers year on year were negative and two were, po- were positive. So growth has been uh, sort of flickering, ditto with inputs. Actually, I am much more interested when we come to look at uh, the Chinese economy at this particular hiatus of what's happening to inputs rather than exports, because inputs reflect, of course, what's happening to the industrial output and indirectly to exports, because China has got a huge inputs-to-exports ratio. In other words, in order for them to export, they need to input, and they are not importing. Uh, again, in the last eight months, seven months were negative and only one month were positive in terms of year-on-year growth. Having said that, and I'll finish very quickly, net exports, net exports, I'll repeat that, that is, in other words, exports minus inputs, growth in China produces, reflects, causes a tiny percentage growth. Mm. in GDP. So China has never been in the last 20 years an export-driven economy, whatever you might be reading. It has been primarily and hugely a domestic economy-driven. That's why I'm not really incredibly upset of what I see in terms of its potential impact on its GDP growth. And just to add that imports figure uh, to the data, imports did perform a bit better than expected. They declined 4.5% year on year, and that, that left the country's monthly trade surplus at $65.8 billion, well below forecasts of, uh, of $92 billion and compared to $90 uh, billion in April. Andrew, what do you make of this? Well, I think, uh, as Andrew was saying, I mean, it's... Uh 
the domestic consumption is under under threat in China, and a lot of that stems from the uh, the, the problems with the housing sector. Um, and if the uh, if the government wants to try and stimulate the economy, I think they've got a further problem in the uh, the local authority debt. They've in the past they've used infrastructure and uh, local authority vehicles to stimulate the economy, but that can only go so far. And uh, that that's going to be a big overhang for the next few months, especially when you've got high unemployment, especially in the youth sector, and uh, another another crop of graduates coming out to the market shortly. If um, there's not going to be exports, if exports has now sort of turned, we have sluggish consumption as well on the mainland, what is it that's going to hold up the Chinese economy? That's one of the reasons you're seeing um, you know, the, the current sell-off in China is the fact that you know, we, we're all trying to guess at what that's going to be. And, and until the government comes out with some sort of stimulus package or some you know, blueprint plan for which way they're going to go, it's going to be very difficult. And what type of stimulus could could the government come out with? There's been talk about triple R cuts, hasn't there? But is that going to be effective? Do we need that or some other type of stimulus? I doubt whether triple R cuts are going to be that effective. I mean, but the reality is, and as as we've seen in Japan in the past, is you can lower interest rates. But I mean, if companies don't think that they can uh, use that money profitably, they won't borrow, regardless of how uh, how cheap the money is. Uh, and I think that's especially true in China that uh, you know companies and people generally are very cautious. Uh, if they're confident, they're happy to go and spend. If they're not confident, then they're not happy to take on more debt or or, or to speculate. Andrew Ferris, what, 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 what will hold yeah. up the economy? Well, I'll chip in, actually. We have been seeing uh, repeated news now that they are cutting interest rates on deposits. Hello? Mm. By 100, 100 how... basis points, reportedly. Yeah I, have no, yeah, I have no idea how this is going to somehow stimulate consumers and uh, uh, domestic producers to go and produce more. Mm. Uh, you know, sorry, if you can do that on borrowing, but uh, doing it effectively, all right, on what people earn on their deposits, I, I have no idea how this increases potential for consumption. Really, mm. I don't understand. Well, the and important also, part, and also yeah. that's on, just to clarify, that's on dollar deposits. And I presume most people in China don't have US dollars. Yeah, well, they can hold uh, US dollars only per, per year, and I think historically, I think historically they have they... done, but they've kept those in, in US dollar terms rather than sending them overseas. So that there probably are some sizable deposits there on household savings because it's a, you know, it's a nest egg that's giving them some security. Andrew, People Andrew Ferris? People Bank of China is traditionally very reluctant to increase or decrease interest rates. They don't like... Uh, doing a Fed. They prefer, in fact, to vary their reserve requirements. And this, it has been cut starting from now, 12 months backwards. I can think perhaps perhaps the number is not quite right, but at least three times in which reserve requirements were cut. And that increases the liquidity of the banks. But as uh, Andrew uh, is also pointing out, making the credit cheaper does not necessarily encourage people to borrow, particularly as in the case of uh, domestic purely domestic uh, private consumption, home prices have been falling, say that slowly, have been falling negative year-on-year growth for the last 13 months. Oh, wow. Mm. <laughs> that, if, that, if that's not, this is, this is the index of uh, new housing in 70 major Chinese cities. I want to emphasize that this is a, a rather, perhaps a rather narrower index, but it is very indicative on what's happening in the new market. 
So if, if you're not impressed by China asking the big banks to cut deposit rates to, to boost the economy, what about the other measures that they're talking about, which are basically to try and support the property market to come up with new regulations on uh, lowering down payments, reducing agent commissions on transactions, that type of thing, which is really, really on top of the 16-point plan we saw back in November that didn't work? Well, that, that makes a lot more sense, given that this is a major weakness in the economy, and then it drives at least an aspect of uh, not uh, just uh, what's happening to your wealth, but also what is happening to expectations. And I think the, the other the, thing to yeah. take in account there is the fact that realistically, at the moment, the developers are concentrating on completing buildings. You know, we're not seeing new land sales. We're not seeing new developments taking place. You know, there, there is an overhang. Yes, they've, they've got to develop these buildings and complete them because these are the ones that people have already started paying for. Mm. But, you know, because of the log jam at the local authority level uh, and, and the fact that the uh, the developers got starved from credit, uh, they haven't been able to buy new land and keep the what was effectively the Ponzi scheme going on property. How long can this keep going? I mean, there's concern, isn't there, about these local government finance vehicles and the amount of debt that sits in them? I mean, S&P Global Ratings estimated at about $6.5 trillion. What sort of overhang is that going to be? I think it's going to be a huge overhang. And I mean, it's something that, you know, effectively, in order to stimulate the economy, the government is going to have to repackage that debt some way. They're not going to write it off. They're going to probably extend the, the, the loan terms. Um, but a lot of that debt is effectively held by the state-owned banks because they've always, you know, viewed it as a, a safe borrowing channel. Andrew Ferris, what do you, what do you think about that? Is, um, is local government debt, is this a risk now that we should be worrying about and focusing more on? Uh, Chinese uh, domestic debt has been uh, uh, an issue of uh, sex and violence for several years now. And uh, the whole point is, is, can China domestically default? Okay, so I'm going to take the very broad view. And that is, uh, China has got, uh, a next, uh, has got a net external uh, lending position. Hmm. It is a huge uh, global uh, lender, uh, domestically speaking, the fact that it has a fixed, sorry, it has a, uh, a fiscal deficit as a percentage of GDP that can easily double uh, and still be well, well, well below the sort of 10% to GDP, uh, uh, which is globally somehow is expected to be a good or a bad sign. I never felt particularly upset that if some municipalities went bankrupt, uh, then that the state could not step in reluctantly. So net lenders, basically, they, they don't default. That's, that's in effect what you're precisely. saying. But, 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 but presumably it has an impact, doesn't it, on the local government's ability to, to stimulate the economy? The other thing is, I mean, they've, they've done very well in past times in stimulating the economies, but there's only so many roads, so many bridges, so many airports that, mm. that local economies can, can uh, actually build. And the, the, the final result is really, do those add actually any value to the local, the local domestic income. And in a lot of these projects, they're really not returning the money that's been invested in them. Now, what about the global um, outlook? We've had the OECD. They've raised their annual growth outlook. Uh, this year, they're saying growth is going to slow to 3.3, uh, sorry, to 2.7% uh, this year from 3.3% last year, but then pick up again 2.9%. Uh, We've also had 
Um, an outlook from the World Bank as well. They raised their 2023 growth outlook, uh, but did go and cut uh, their 2024 uh, forecast. So, Andrew Ferris, first of all, let me ask you to, to kick off with that. In, in terms of global um, sort of growth, how are you seeing it? Well, I was going to tell you, unfortunately, I have a, I have a very relaxed view on uh, uh, World Bank and IF, IMF uh, uh, forecast of global growth, not because I don't believe them or, or I think they are wrong or they don't get it right. Effectively, they are irrelevant. I have no idea. Okay, so global growth will increase. What I really care is, is what is the, the component of that growth. And the component of that growth is primarily China. It, it tends to add a substantial percentage, okay, to, to, to the growth. And then, of course, uh, the, the G8 economies. So, you know, global growth is increasing from 2% to 2.X%. And my reaction is, is, and so what? What does that tell me? Most definitely, it doesn't tell me anything about what to buy or sell. Uh, I will add something very quickly. I was reading the surprise and the chagrin of German exporters to China who are equally saying nothing is happening. I mean, this is one of our key markets, and we're really are neither exporting a lot or exporting at all. And that's why I go back, in fact, to the inputs from China as a major, uh, uh, if you want to look in terms of global uh, trends uh, that will be, that will be uh, let's say, warring us, as opposed to whether the GDP globally has gone up by another X 10 basis points or whatever it is. I mean, the global economy is, is, is generally slowing. I mean, I think, as, as Andrew said there, and it's been a big in, impact for Germany especially, um, but that's really a reflection, I guess, also of the fact of you know, the, the impact of the zero COVID, the US sanctions, uh, people friendshoring or, or moving uh, their, their supply chain slowly out of China. And that, that you know, a lot of people will be looking at China and their production in China for, for domestic consumption within China rather than being a, an export hub for the, for the world that we've seen over the last 10, 15 years. Let me ask you both. Um, do, do you see the central banks? Are they winning their fight against inflation? I mean, we had data in this region. We had data this week, inflation data from Thailand and the Philippines, both of which was much lower um, than expected. Are they winning this battle, Andrew? Andrew Ferris? Well, uh, Aussie, for example, uh, looks as if they are getting there, except Canada, of course, that increased uh, interest rates. The answer is, is yes, it is a hiatus. And at least in terms of the year-on-year numbers, uh, both in the case of the European Union and in the States, it's coming down. Yeah, but unfortunately, not anywhere near the 2%, which is the target. So uh, I would not be surprised at all that uh, the end of the increases in interest rates will come by the central banks actually increasing their expected inflation in the next two to three years. In other words, 2% might be unrealistic. And it doesn't help that OPEC, of course, is planning to uh, increase oil prices by, by reducing its, uh, its output. I mean, I think one of the key things here is the fact that that 2% long-term average that the Fed is uh, targeting reflects the fact that you know interest rates though have been manipulated by the fed you know since the great financial crisis so they've been unrealistically low because that's the was the fed's policy so to say that that is the long-term average i think is as andrew is saying it, it's actually wrong it's probably going to have to be higher than that uh, and we're just going uh, uh, but even at you know two three 
3 4%. I mean, long-term average that most of us grew up with, you know, interest rates were above 5% for most of the time. Do you think um, China, which has sort of got this, well, not deflation, I suppose, but disinflationary trend, is, is that going to um, hold back inflation elsewhere in the world? In other words, is, is China's sort of stalling growth, is that going to um, keep this dis- disinflationary trend intact that we're seeing in other parts of the world, Andrew? Well, that, that depends on two things. depends on uh, how strong and good China exports are, because that will be an import uh, import price component into the inflation of other countries. And these exports are not holding up. And uh, the second point is, is that uh, also the producer price inflation in China is also very low and coming down. And that will be an extra, let's say, uh, comforting uh, reason. But as long as China is not exporting, and it's not exporting because it doesn't want to, it is because other countries are not importing. I'm sorry, this is Nobel Prize winning stuff. Then I'm not quite sure how the Chinese inflation number helps global inflation numbers. And we must never, ever, ever forget. We always concentrate on the United States, European Union, and we'll forget the two other major economies, and that's China and Japan. And Japan, of course, inflation, at least as we come back on a year-to-year basis uh, towards the end of the year, inflation is going to go straight back to 2%. In other words, Japanese inflation is low. And finally, oh God, I really sound like an economist, whether this is going to have any impact at all will also depend, of course, on the exchange rates if, if the yen uh, uh, continues to be relatively, relatively weak, all right? therefore making imports relatively cheaper, irrespective of whether people are not still importing from China. Sorry, their growth of imports is, is not there. Yeah, I think I agree with Andrew on that. I mean, it, it, if China's not exporting, and of course, part of the reason China's not exporting is because, you know, the sanctions against it, um, it's it's having trouble getting hold of uh, advanced chips, and it was looking to move up the, the technology ladder to, to try and export more added value. But until, you know, until the, um, the situation between America and China improves, uh, and they come to some concessions between each other, I don't think that's going to change. Where does um, the US fit into this? We've we've had the jobs data a week or so ago, which was surprisingly strong. But then we had the services PMI, which was surprisingly weak. What's what's the situation in the US, Andrew? Uh, looking at the real interest rates in in United States, it doesn't look good in terms of the probability. Actually, I wouldn't say probability; the near certainty that the Fed is going to increase again. Because inflation has dropped below 6%, is about 5%. Interest rates are 5%, and therefore real interest rates are zero. And they have been negative for yonks. So in other words, for real interest rates to become positive, not that it means anything to consumers and producers, but it is a useful indicator of the underlying trend, then, uh, then we're not having a tighter monetary policy. And this takes time to work through. So as far as United States is concerned, uh, we're doing fine but assuming, and I always don't fight the Fed, assuming that the Fed still keeps with 2%, then they are going to increase interest rates again. Yeah, I think that's very clear. I mean, they've got very little option at the moment. And I mean, you know, Powell has, has said for ages that he's going to you know, keep rates higher for longer. Um, it was just that the market tended to take a view that, uh, against that. Um, and as Andrew was saying, yeah, the, 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 the phrase has always been, don't fight the Fed. 
And yet earlier this year, we saw the markets, you know, assuming that the Fed was going to cut, start cutting rates, you know, later this year. And that just didn't seem to make sense. So it's going to be a, a skip, is it? At, uh, that seems to be the, the latest uh, buzzword, doesn't it? A skip this month rather than a pause and then more rises next month. Well, I mean, they're still going to be data dependent and they'll look at the data that comes out ahead of that meeting. Um, my own feeling is I, I think they'll probably continue to, to raise rates because, you know, they want to try and squeeze the inflation out. I think Powell has already said that he's, he's quite happy to, he doesn't want a recession, but he's quite happy to accept it, that they might have a mild recession if it means that he can squeeze his inflation again. And that's is going to be his main goal. Andrew Ferris, I mean, you've been adamant for a while that there's going to be more rate hikes, including one uh, this month. Do you still sort of hold that view? Oh, very much so, because as I said, inflation looks okay. In other words, it, it is going where it is supposed to go, but it is a very, very long way away. And unless I hear the Fed saying, well, forget about two, it's going to be 4%, then I can't possibly uh, think that there is something there that will make the Fed to say we are holding or perhaps we will continue in a few months' time to begin cutting interest rates. No, they won't. Okay. I want to turn our attention to this crackdown on cryptocurrencies. On Monday, the SEC filed 13 civil charges accusing Binance of unlawfully soliciting investors and customers, lying about the degree of trading on the platform, misrepresenting its oversight and risk precautions, and improperly using customer funds. Then on Tuesday, the SEC charged Coinbase, the biggest crypto trading platform in the country, with operating illegally as it widened its crackdown on the industry. And together, Coinbase and Binance account for half of global trading in digital assets so what sort of impact is this going to have well i think one of the key things is it will make uh, investors more cautious about really where they hold their money and, and certainly with crypto i think you'll see an in- increased uh, reliance on what they call cold wallets rather than leaving money on the exchanges uh, and i think that makes an awful lot of sense i think as far as the cryptocurrencies are concerned i mean w- Ever since FTX, you know, we, we saw, the, you know, the Bitcoin sell off on the back of that first debacle. But it's recovered and it seems to be relatively stable around that sort of twenty five, twenty six thousand mark. Um, and, and people are happy with it. So, you know, it's here to stay. I think the, the, the crackdown is um, it, it's an interesting one because obviously, you know, saying these exchanges are illegal and yet having allowed them to operate for so long um, makes a bit of a fallacy of the, the charges that it's now bringing. But it's, you know, it, it's still evolving. Uh, um, and I think one, one lesson to take for it is the fact that we hope that uh, when it comes to AI, governments are a lot more, um, have a better framework in place much quicker than, than what we're seeing the, uh, the SEC do in retrospect now on, uh, on crypto. Uh, Andrew, uh, you know, I was just about joking to say, please let's, don't start your bitcoins, because I have been quite a virulent critic of this uh, aberration. Now, I have to be fair to them here in the sense that uh, it isn't because they are bitcoins that they are being naughty, because we had plenty of banks that are not bitcoiny at all, uh, such as Credit Suisse and uh, the Silicon Valley Bank, okay, that uh, also s- screw up in terms of their regulatory approach. However, okay, however, there are too many Bitcoin banks and operations, okay, being caught continuously on the wrong side of the law. And uh, I'm rather pleased with that because I can't think there is, there cannot ever be enough restrictions on warning people as uh, to what Bitcoin is and the fact that they are trading on an asset 
in inverted commas, okay, that has no assets whatsoever backing it. So I have no idea how the regulators will ever get around the fact that they are looking at an institution which is selling something that has absolutely no in, intrinsic value behind it. And if it ends up being backed by US dollars, then it will be just another boring representative asset. But trading Bitcoin, I'm using it generically now as Bitcoin, you're trading nothing. Okay. So I have no idea how the, the regulators will, will control nothing. Yeah, I think you know it's uh, you know it's it's a phase. I mean, it's uh, it's it's been around for a while now. People you know, rely on it in, in a in a digital form, and it's it's the fact that actually you know the youth of today you know they play online games, they buy online assets to play those games. They seem to be happy with it. So it's I think it's here to stay. What does it mean for Hong Kong? Hong Kong wants to be a, a, a trading hub for digital assets. It, it wants to open it up to retail investors to allow them to buy uh, digital assets as well um, under certain restrictions, um, of course. But then you have the, the chairman of the SEC, Gary Gensler, um, saying that the whole industry is built on non-compliance. So is it possible for Hong Kong to be a, a center for, for digital assets, Andrew? Actually, Peter, I cannot see how this could be the case since still trading bitcoins in china is illegal mm. I, 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 I really don't I, I fail to see whether this is uh, this is driving and given that i don't like bitcoins the answer is is i don't like to see things that are encouraging people to trade on something which has no intrinsic value it's not a matter that uh, i know better than they do but uh, uh, you know let fools uh, step in where angels fear to tread and that's their own business. But officially to say, yes, we sanction it. We think it is a very good idea that you trade. Why they encourage people to smoke, for God's sakes? People know that smoking causes cancer. All right, fair enough. So, you know, why we should go around trying to discourage them? I have no idea why the same thing is not uh, extended, okay, to trade in an asset that has no intrinsic value. But that enters now into moral hazard. It enters into politics. It enters quite a lot. And as I say, I've said enough. I think Andrew's right. I mean, I think that the reality is, though, that this is a, an area of trading where there is no common international standards. And, uh, you know, what, what um, the SEC is trying to do at the moment in the US appears to be to try and, you know, control this space. But realistically, you know, there, there should be, you know, some international standards, some, some, some base, baseline that everybody should work to. Okay. Finally, let me just get your thoughts um, on the markets. Um, the Hang Seng and Chinese stocks in, in general, they seem to be getting sort of a little bit of a bounce on these reports of, well, rumours of policy support. Also, uh, it was supported yesterday by reports of this planned trip by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to China uh, this month. It was obviously a very bad month in May uh, for the markets. But what do you think the outlook is? Well, I think until we, I, I, I still think you know, volumes are very light, which tells you that you know there's no new money coming into these markets. Um, a lot of it is trading around short positions. People have, you know, the, China has tried over the last six months to talk its own book up uh, and to inspire confidence, and it's it seems to be failing in that regard. And I think a lot of investors are waiting to see solid policy moves before they are prepared to uh, to take a to take a stand. And in the meantime, we're seeing money rotate out of China, certainly into Japan, where there seems to be policy change in the offering there, and into Korea and Taiwan, which are you know, beneficiaries of the, uh, the moves in AI. Andrew Ferris, final word to you. What, what are your thoughts on China relative, China equities anyway, relative to maybe other markets in the region? 
in my in my favorite Bloomberg screen, where everything is green, where we're year and year in US dollar terms up, uh, the reds are now popping up uh, much more continuously. In other words, the the markets are uncertain. All right. And now that means absolutely nothing except that an increase in Fed interest rates uh, might trigger a, a repositioning, meaning, in other words, markets coming down. So I, I am not doing anything on the equity side, okay, as, as, a, as an asset class for at least another two months. Okay, well, thank you both very much. You heard there Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory, Andrew Sullivan, who is the founder of Asian Market Sense. <laughs> I'm joined now by Vandana Hari, who is the founder of Vanda Insights. Very good morning to you, Vanda. Good morning, Peter. Let me get your thoughts then on this surprise um, Saudi production cut, uh, which came last weekend at the OPEC Plus meeting. Seemed to have taken people off guard, didn't it? Yes, Peter. I think the biggest surprise probably was that it was a bit of a damp squib. Uh, you know, especially in light of uh, the Saudi energy minister's repeated warning to short sellers uh, just a few days before the meeting, uh, the expectation in the market, at least as, as far as oil bulls were concerned, was that perhaps um, as a de facto OPEC leader, Saudi Arabia might be able to cobble together uh, a wider uh, contribution within OPEC Plus to a, a much bigger cut. Uh, and what turned out from the meeting was just this uh, unilateral, voluntary Saudi cut of 1 million barrels per day only for one month, just for July. So it was uh, just nowhere near enough uh, to provide a prop to crude prices. Uh, some views in the market are perhaps it may have put a floor under crude. Uh, that so far seems to be uh, borne out. Uh, you know, we have seen sort of uh, Brent uh, around the mid-70s, uh, but certainly not uh, anywhere uh, looking like it's going to shoot up uh, uh, beyond 80. So why did Saudi Arabia do this then? What does it hope to achieve from this? Because as you say, it's nowhere near enough. It may only just be for one month. What, what are they trying to signal here? Yeah, so there's the official narrative, which is that uh, there's, you know, the, the, he used a lot of colorful phrases, the Saudi energy minister saying it was the icing on the cake, a lollipop, uh, and that they are just uh, a, a precautionary cut even, if you will, uh, so on. But um, what, what the market perceives it as, as I said, is, is just not enough. And also what it perceives it as is that there was probably no appetite uh, in the wider group, uh, there's 19 members in all that are uh, participating in, the, in this production management pact for the past several years uh, that nobody else just was in a mood uh, to cut. So Saudi Arabia had to go it alone. Uh, you know, that's the perception in the market. So is Saudi Arabia losing its influence then in trying to keep all these oil exporting nations on the same page? Because we, we did get the impression, didn't it, that it was a rather divided OPEC? Uh Look, I think uh, tensions, divisions, um, rifts uh, in OPEC and OPEC Plus um, have been common. Uh, they will remain a part of the life of this um, uh, of this alliance. I wouldn't go so far as to say that they are losing influence. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's pure mathematics. You know, just Saudi Arabia and Russia, by virtue of being 
the largest producers by far. You know, the, the second and third largest producers within that alliance are, are you know, close to a third or less than half of what these two produce. Uh, they they will have an, an influence. And precisely because of what Saudi Arabia did uh, and has done before in saying that, uh, you know, it's fine, we'll, we'll go it alone. So I think Saudi Arabia will remain uh, the sort of de facto leader, as, as we like to call it. Uh, that's not changing. But yes, there are a lot of tensions and I would say more tensions ahead for the group uh, as they're doing some uh, big house cleaning in the coming months and, and next year in terms of realigning quotas of, of the several members that have been falling way short. Uh, of their uh, production quotas. does leave Saudi Arabia rather exposed, though, doesn't it? Because the, the, I thought the whole point, really, of OPEC+, Plus, or one of the reasons for OPEC+, Plus, was so that Saudi Arabia didn't get put into the position where it had to cut production unilaterally, as, as it did in uh, famously in the 80s, for example. Um, and, and OPEC+, Plus was sort of designed to avoid that situation, but it, it does seem to have been left high and dry, doesn't it? Uh, but yes, I wouldn't argue against that point, uh, Peter. You're, you're absolutely right about uh, in terms of the that's that is the concept of working in an alliance and you know trying to get uh, cohesion, collaboration, and moving together forward. So I think what I would conclude from from those two arguments is that uh, basically I think Saudi Arabia will have to use this going it alone strategy very judiciously, which I would say so far it has been. I mean, it's like a trump card. You know, you can't continue to play it again and again uh, with the same effect. In fact, I think it's already proven this time around that it did, uh, you know, the trump card just didn't work. But I I do believe that they they know that, you know, very, very smart people, uh, of, you know, goes without saying, uh, running the, the ministry and the strategy there. So uh, I think they will use it sparingly. Um, and they will, uh, you know, they will try to move forward with with a consensus and and everybody uh, pitching in with whatever they do, whether it's raising or reducing production. So, how significant is OPEC as a price setter um, these days? Is its influence waning, or is it still a very powerful um, cartel? So, when you say these days, then uh, you know, in the short term, I would say it's uh, a bit powerless because uh, let's face it, it's it, you know, it's not so much a supply problem; it's a demand problem yeah. right now. And within that, it's not so much the physical real demand problem. It's always difficult to measure exactly how many barrels the world is consuming every single day, um, but it is the perception of demand problem. So, uh, crude has been moving up and down uh, largely in line with the sentiment in the broader financial markets and, and to some extent with what's happening with China, macroeconomic data in China, which has been quite disappointing as, as well. So it's a perception uh, problem uh, within OPEC+. Plus. But uh, in, in terms of um, supply-demand balance, you know, so OPEC is now having to be responsive and it is being responsive not so much to the physical signals as to uh, what, let's say, the speculators might be doing uh, in uh, just from fear and panic sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, funds move out of asset classes and they move out of crude as well. So, but longer term, you know, it is, it's OPEC plus accounts for 40, more than 40% of uh, global supply. So I would say as long as it remains, manages to stay together, 
uh, they will continue to have an influence. And presumably, if you want to try and predict oil prices these days, what you've got to watch is the data that's coming out of China on their economy. So things like the trade data that we saw yesterday, which showed this big slowdown in exports, also a slowdown in imports, although not as much uh, as the exports slowdown, that's quite significant. Absolutely. So just to put this in context, uh, China, with its uh, consumption of about 15 million barrels per day of oil, accounts for 15 percent of uh, global demand. It is. um, Yes, of course, India is a a, uh, third largest uh, consumer, but, you know, far behind China. So basically, the world of oil looks very closely at what uh, the tea leaves are saying about China. And exactly as you mentioned uh, the macro, the oil uh, imports, crude imports, oil demand data has been a bit, you know, hard to to pin down in one way or another. But the macroeconomic data as in, in China has not been very encouraging, uh, especially uh, the industrial sector is, is lagging, which mean in, in terms of uh, rebound, which means, uh, you know, has implications on diesel consumption uh, in China. Gasoline and jet fuel demand, not surprisingly, are doing quite well out the gate, you know, as people are uh, traveling much more, services are doing well. But, you know, if diesel demand doesn't pick up in in China, uh, then overall it's going to remain a drag on the the consumption rebound of the country. So if you want to put all of this together, where do you see oil, Brent crude oil going over the coming months? Yeah, so again, in the very short term, um, the, the complex is looking to the Fed meeting next week. Again, as I mentioned earlier, it's all very sentiment driven, very driven by what uh, the economic uh, expectations are. And of course, those are principally centered on what happens in the US, what happens in, in Europe. Um, yeah, And for the coming months, I would say, uh, again, um, it the market will keep a very close watch on um, what, uh, how Chinese appetite is recovering, and it will keep a very close watch on uh, what the sort of recession view is uh, with regard uh, to the U.S. Overall, I don't see, uh, of course, OPEC will be there um, uh, trying to impact uh, from the sidelines, but probably ending up putting more, trying to put a floor under prices rather than uh, boosting them. Um, you know, I'm thinking 70 to 80 range, more like mid 70s. Uh, I'm certainly not in the camp that says that prices are going to go above 80, above 90 or 100 uh, in the second half of the year. I'm really not sure where that comes from. But if, if OPEC is trying to put a floor under prices, the problem is there's Russia, which is selling oil more than $20 below the price on, on world markets. So it sort of blows the OPEC strategy apart, doesn't it? Bingo. So not only that, but uh, Russia has actually not been delivering on the half a million barrels per day, quote unquote, voluntary cut uh, that they pledged way before the OPEC plus voluntary cuts came about and declared at the beginning of April and which were implemented from May. Russia was uh, saying they will cut uh, output by half a million barrels per day from all accounts. Of course, they do not give out official figures uh, anymore since last year, but by all accounts, you know, based on ship tracking data, uh, export data from that country, they have cut, but maybe like about half of what what they had pledged. So not only is Russia um, eating into Middle Eastern peers' markets, uh, 30% discount is huge on oil, but it is also not... Uh, quite complying with uh, its uh, promise of half a million barrels per day cut. So that's a, that's a major problem. It is, 
it could remain a major source of tension within OPEC plus. I think to some extent, the uh, Middle Eastern peers uh, understand that the country is in a difficult situation. They might just give, the, uh, let it slide. But mm. for how long, uh, you know, before it sort of drives a wedge into OPEC plus, I think that remains to be seen. And of course, finally, the, the big beneficiary of that is India, um, which is um, importing now more oil from Russia than it does from Iraq, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and the US uh, combined. That sort of also undermines OPEC as well, doesn't it? Because OPEC's share of imports to India is now at its lowest in about uh, 22 years. But this is a big boon for the Indian economy. Absolutely. And, and why wouldn't they? Uh, it's not uh, Russian exports aren't uh, banned. Uh, what the West, the EU and the G7 have done is they've said that you have to buy uh, your product, uh, the, the oil from Russia under a certain cap, which they've put for uh, $60 uh, for, per barrel for, for crude. Um, in, if you want to use Western services, insurance and trade financing and, and shipping, but a whole um, industry has cropped up uh, that is not aligned in any way to the EU and G7 services providers, whether it's finance or, or shipping and so on, uh, which is uh, very happy. Well, most mostly the oil has been trading under the cap, but this industry that has cropped up, um, you know, the dark fleet, you, you keep hearing about that uh, of, of ships, which are, you know, have nothing to do with, with the Western um, alliance, uh, are very happy to transport oil if it is not, uh, been concluded under the, the price cap. So mm. these massive trade flows uh, shifts have happened. Uh, you're absolutely right. They are benefiting India uh, in, a, in a big way and, and, you know, likely to continue as long as uh, I suppose the war continues and the sanctions remain in place. Vandana, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Peter. That's Vandana Hari, who is founder of Vanda Insights. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Money Talk, and I'll be joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Kenny Wen, head of investment strategy at KGI Asia. Have a great day. Money Talk. 